Well, I've heard it said you can either learn by experience or you can learn from wisdom. Sometimes we learn by experience, uh, through our own success or even through failures in our lives, through, through obedience in our life that produces fruit, or by our disobedience where we come to know hard consequences that we face as a result of folly in our life. Other times, we don't learn by experience, but by wisdom, meaning we consider success in the lives of others. Maybe it's the life of, of your parent. Maybe it's the lives of another church member, and you, you see fruit in their lives. You see a, a life worth emulating, and you learn from their wisdom. Or even sometimes, we learn from the folly of those around us, the, the mistakes from those around us, the sin and, and failures of those around us. And, and we learn to not make that same mistake. Well, in the pages of the Bible, we find stories of the lives of men and women that serve ex examples to us, some that are commended as models of faith that we should follow, and some that were exhorted, be, be careful. Here's a cautionary tale, a, a failure and a test of faith to avoid. And that's what we see in, in Genesis chapter 16. It's one of those stories this morning that, that serves to teach us wisdom as we see folly and failure in a test of faith in the lives of Abram and his wife, Sarai. So in Genesis 16, we find a scene of failure there where they fail to wait on God. They fail to walk in light of his promise, and they, they fail to walk in obedience to his word. You see, the test of time challenged their faith, and sadly, they failed a test of faith. Well, God's word is called for us to consider and to apply to our own lives. So have you considered this morning, Christian, that one of the greatest tests to your faith is the test of time? What does it look like when we, we pray and we ask God to work and, and we haven't received an answer to that prayer in the way that we prayed and we're tested by time? Are we going to be patient? Are we going to persevere in obedience? How long will we believe God if he doesn't answer the prayers that we pray? A week? A month? A year? Like Abram and Sarah, 10 years, a decade of waiting? You see, our, our faith is tested by time. When the Lord is, is moving slower than what we want, how will we react? Will we trust him? Will we persevere by his grace and walk in obedience to his word? Well, today's passage in Genesis 16 looks at how Abram and Sarai responded to the problem of ongoing barrenness. And it serves to us as a warning, a warning against impatience, that we might walk in faith and obedience to God. Well, turn with me to Genesis chapter 16. The best way to stay engaged in the sermon is to open up a copy of God's word. If you need that Bible right in front of you, Take that Bible in the pew rack right there and turn to Genesis chapter 16. That's page 11 in your pew Bible. You can turn and follow along with us. And if you come this morning and you don't own a Bible, we want to give you that Bible as a gift. Take it home with you, read it, connect with someone here, either a member that you're sitting around or come see one of our pastors or staff at the top of the ramp afterwards. We'd love to talk with you more about learning and understanding the Bible. In Genesis chapter 16, we find this story of Sarai and Abram. I'm going to read through the entire chapter as we jump into our sermon this morning. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me 
from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I'm fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God of seeing. For she said, Truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well was called Beer Lahai Roy. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son. And Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. Well, last week we were in Genesis 15, and Genesis 15 took us through the ratification of, of God's covenant to Abram. God had promised in chapter 12 to give Abram land and to give him descendants to make his name great, to bless him, and to bless him to be a mighty nation, that through him and his descendants all the nations of the earth would be blessed. The promise was sure. We saw last week it was guaranteed by God's covenant. God gave him assurance, but Abram would still need to wait. He was given everything he needed, promise, assurance, comfort, but he still needed patience. He needed to walk by faith for God to fulfill his promise. And Abram and Sarah, they had faith, but we see that at times their faith was, was weak. Like you and I, they, they struggled to wait on God. And furthermore, the tendency we've seen in their lives, so we've seen these mountaintop moments, believing God, trusting God, walking by faith, but we also get a realistic picture in the Bible of what walking by faith looks like, that sadly we experience trials and temptations that at times will fail, that we'll see the weakness of our faith or we'll struggle to trust God and therefore to obey Him. And we've seen that in the lives of Abram and Sarah already. Abram led his wife to flee Egypt during the time of famine. He devised a, a deceptive plan to present Sarai as his sister. And this scene in Genesis 16, it shows us once again unfaithfulness. Unfaithfulness of Abram and Sarai. But it also shows us the faithfulness of God. You see, the main character in the book of Genesis is God. 
The main character in, in, in the Bible is God. He's, he's revealing himself and, and who he is in the pages of the Bible. He's revealing that he alone is faithful. He's kind. He's full of grace and mercy. He sees and he hears and understands the lives of his people and all of their afflictions. He's not indifferent to the suffering of people, but rather God draws near in kindness and grace and mercy. And that's what we see displayed this morning in Genesis chapter 16. Well, the challenge with time uh, is that over time, you see God's faithfulness. But the challenge with time as well is that over time, we're challenged to be patient. Isn't it interesting how that works? In the lives of Christians, we can look back and we can recount testimonies over time. God has been so faithful to us in the past, but then in the present, we may be struggling to believe God. We may struggle to be patient. It's not, not logical. It doesn't make sense. It's not in light of God's promises. It doesn't even make sense in light of all that we've seen of God demonstrating his faithfulness to us. And we, we, we struggle in the present at times to trust God, to believe his word, to be patient. And that's a picture of what we see from Genesis 12 to Genesis 16 as we trace the story of Abram and Sarah. You see, the passing of time, it can be one of our greatest tests of faith. Well, how do we respond when God moves more slowly than we'd like? We see this morning faith and patience, they go together. Believing God and his promises, it will produce patience in our lives by the power of the Holy Spirit to wait for God. As we make our way through Genesis chapter 16 this morning, I want us to see two encouragements to walk in faith and patience. So our outline this morning, we're going to look at two encouragements to walk in faith and patience. The first encouragement we find in verses 1 through 6, listen to the voice of the Lord. Verses 1 through 6, listen to the voice of the Lord. Well, chapter 15 left off with God assuring Abraham of the certainty of his promises. Yet again, the testing of time, it proved difficult for Abram and Sarah to wait. And what we see in chapter 16 is a struggle to be patient and to wait for God to fulfill his promises. Verse 1 sets the scene. It, it presents the problem. Look at verse 1. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. So Abram and Sarah, they had received a covenant promise of descendants and, and land, and they were waiting. Now, now Sarah, at this point, was almost 75 years old. She was barren. She had no children. She was getting older. We see down in verse 16, her husband Abram, he was getting older too, 86 years old. Time was moving on, and nothing seemed to change in their situation. They didn't have a child. They didn't have land. Ten years they had been waiting. And last, year I, I, last week I encouraged you to think, imagine if it is 2031, and you've been praying for something since today, and ten years later you, you have a desire that is yet to be met. Prayers that haven't been answered, yes. Well, how does that affect your faith. Will you still wait? It's the picture of the challenge that Abram and Sarah, the test that they were going through. They didn't have a child. They didn't have land yet after 10 years. And in a situation like that, it's easy to focus in on what you don't yet have. It can be easy to focus in on what God has not given you and forgetting what God has given you. And that's what living by sight often looks like. Focusing in on what we perceive that we have not received from God. And when you focus in on what you haven't received, you miss this big picture of God who has shown himself 
to be kind and faithful and generous time and time again. They didn't have a son, they didn't have land, but they had God. They had his promises. They had the guarantee of God's promises, a covenant ratified in blood through God himself initiating a covenant with Abram. There were things that were painful that they didn't have, but they weren't focusing in on. They forgot what it was they were graciously given. They had God. They had his promises. That was enough. That's sufficient. And faith says, God, you are more than enough. It's not you plus something else. It's not you plus a temporary earthly gift. You are more than enough for me is what the cry of faith says from the heart. Well, as we read through this story, there are elements we can relate to in our lives as Christians, but there certainly are some differences we need to point out here. Abram was promised a son by God himself, promised an heir. As Christians, we are not promised children. We're not promised a spouse, a house, and kids. Now, we often desire that. That's a good desire to have. But that's not a biblical promise that we should be waiting on God to fulfill. It's a great prayer many of you desire. If you're not yet married, to be married. God gives that desire. Uh, Many of you can thank God that he has fulfilled that desire in your life. Uh, Some of you are praying and waiting for children. A good thing to pray for, a good desire that we trust God puts in the hearts of men and women of his people. But we must recognize those aren't promises. Those are blessings for sure, but not promises given to us like what we see in Genesis with Abram and Sarai. And while we don't have specific promises from God of bearing children, we do have those desires. And when those prayers go unanswered for a long period of time, we can be tempted toward discouragement, wondering if God hears our prayer, tempted to wonder if God really does care about us, tempted to, to doubt his goodness, and we can be li- begin to live out of pain and fear instead of living a life of faith. You see, our trouble is often found in dealing with unanswered prayers, and our temptation is often found in struggling to trust God's timing. When we walk by sight, we grow impatient. In fact, impatience is a key symptom of not walking by faith. So as we read through this chapter, we can identify with this story in certain regards and how we respond to prayers that seem to go unanswered and desires that seem to be left unfulfilled. And we find wisdom here to guard against impatience and to rather walk by faith. Well, the problem here is that time is moving on. There was no child for Abram. And this section takes us through the solution his wife Sarai came up with to this problem. But we see that her solution, as is often the case with human wisdom, doesn't bring about a resolution to problems, but rather introduces more problems. Verse 2, she seems to have some contempt in what she's recognizing the problem to be. And even though verse 2 seems to have some contempt to it, in saying that the Lord prevented her from bearing children, there's still a lot of truth in that statement. It is the Lord who opens up wombs and creates life in the womb. Every unborn baby in a womb has been put there by the Lord himself. His idea, his creation, not owned by mom, not owned by dad, but owned by the Lord. His creation his idea, the work of his power. You see, God creates people. We've seen that in the book of Genesis. He creates people male and female. He places life in the womb because he is the giver of all life. And we see that all unborn life 
it comes from him. And that's why as Christians and as a local church, we work for the dignity and the honor and the protection of the unborn. And this is one of the many places in Scripture we see God himself is the one who opens up the womb. We are to honor God by honoring unborn life that is the room, in the womb. All conception is under his control. So Sarai's statement, it contains truth, but it also seems to be delivered with some contempt and maybe even some bitterness. Now, to be sure, this was a sad situation. The inability to have a child is, we understand, a direct result of, of Genesis 3. That as sin came into the world, the curse of sin has tainted and affected everything. And it's because of the curse of sin that we have physical struggles. It's because of the curse of sin that the sad trial of infertility exists. So it's understandable this trial was painful, difficult, and we learn from this story that there are good ways to deal with pain and suffering, and there are sinful ways to deal with pain and suffering. The, the problem here is how it is that Sarai responded to this pain and to the solution she came up with. Now, God had blessed Abram and Sarai with an abundance of possessions when they were freed from Egypt. And so Sarai had a female Egyptian servant named Hagar that she ended up looking to as the solution to her problem. Sarai proposed a polygamous relationship as a solution. Her idea was that Hagar would become Abram's second wife and that maybe she could bear them a child. Now, be, to be sure, the suggestion of obtaining a, a child through a second wife uh, was a normal practice in that time in the surrounding nations. Polygamy was a worldly solution back then to infertility. But just because that was normal in the ancient world and culturally acceptable in that day doesn't mean it was right in God's sight. Doesn't mean it was pleasing to the Lord. You see, God had called Abram and Sarah out of the world, out of darkness, to not live like the nations around them. They had a relationship with the one true God. They had the ability to hear from his word and to come to him in prayer and to cry out to him as their God, and they were his people. They didn't have to live like the nations around them. They didn't have to adopt the human wisdom and the human solutions like the world around them. They were the people of God. They had the creator of heaven and earth watching over them and caring for them. You see, the way this story is presented, this proposal from Sarah, it's clearly seen as a lack of faith. She had other options besides this one. Namely, she could have cried out to the Lord for help. She could have cried out to the Lord for wisdom. She could have cried out to the Lord for strength and, and for patience, but we don't read her crying out to the Lord here. We read of her crafting a plan. And isn't that a lesson for us Christians? That in our pain and in our difficulty, so often we want to move to fix it, to figure out how to change our situation, to figure out how to get out of this circumstance or change things, when often the first step and the ongoing step that we're invited to, and then indeed is wisdom in our life, cry out to the Lord. He hears your prayers. Prayer is some of your best work. It's some of the best ways to lift up the anxieties and the trouble and the pain in your life. Like we sing so often uh, in, our, in our hymn, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. That hymn comments on, on, oh, what needless pain we bear because we don't carry things to God in prayer. Now, that might not be the exact line, but something like that. You get the point, right? So we, we bear pain often needlessly because we don't pause and pray and cry out to the Lord. It takes faith 
to do that. It takes faith to say that I can't secure a future for myself that is better than the one that God already has planned for me. It may seem like I can secure a better future. I can make things happen. I can get the result that I desire more quickly because I can just go do this and do this and do this and work things according to my plan. But that's not a life of faith. It's not a life, Christian, that you're called to. There's a better way. There's a way that brings fruit and joy and life and happiness. And we see an example here of human means and human wisdom bringing about a lot of pain as this story unfolds. We see from verse 3, again, there was 10 years of waiting, 10 years of barrenness. That's painful. That is difficult. A decade of pain and waiting. And God was moving more slowly than what Sarai wanted. And she made her move to take her servant Hagar and to give her to Abram as his second wife. And Abram willingly went along with this. A key phrase at the end of verse 3, and Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. There's allusion here back to Genesis chapter 3. Back in Genesis chapter 3, Adam listened to the voice of his wife rather than listening to the voice of the Lord. Now, now let me be clear here. Uh, This is not at all condemning the voice of your wife. I know in my life, the voice of my wife is often a voice of wisdom. And my life is, is often enriched and for the better when I listen to the voice of my wife. What this is condemning here is that there's a voice that's not promoting faith. And then there's a voice from God that is good and right. And sometimes we may find our, our own voice in that place of suggesting or promoting something that actually does not bring honor to God. So there's a call to discern. And there's a call to, to exercise self-control and to wait and to listen to God's word. Back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 17, we see here Adam being cursed by God. And here's what God said to him. Because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you in pain. You shall eat of it all the days of your life. Again, an illusion. In Genesis 3, we saw that Eve took the fruit and gave it to her husband to eat. And in Genesis chapter 16, we see that Sarai took her maidservant and gave her to her husband as his wife. You see, Abram, like Adam, had heard God's word. He knew what God had said. He would have a son, an heir. And rather than living in light of God's word, he listened to and followed the fearful words of his wife. Rather than leading as he should and pointing to faith and trusting, and rather than leading the situation saying, Sarah, let's pray and let's call out to God. Let's ask for help and for patience and wisdom in this moment. Abram just went along with this crazy plan. You see, the phrase, listen to the voice of, it's a very close relation to the word obey. Abram did not trust and obey the voice of the Lord. He lacked faith, and the voice of his wife, seemed to make sense. You see, Sarah came up with the plan and Abram validated it and participated in it and put it into action. He indeed was responsible. Now, faith is seen in following God's word. Here in this scene, Abram followed human reason. In verse 4, we see that Sarah's plan, it, it worked. Hagar conceived. She got pregnant. But we don't see any joy coming from the situation. All we see is pain. Immediately there was contempt. 
Hagar looked down on Sarai. Jealousy arose between Sarai and Hagar as perhaps she was wondering uh, who would now have favor in Abram's eyes. Almost like, what did we just do? And Sarai in jealousy turned to Abram to direct her anger at him in verse 5 as if to say, look at the mess you've made. And in a maneuver that is as old as Genesis chapter 16, for a husband to get the spotlight off of himself, Abram then pointed somewhere else and said, sure, go take the hostility out on Hagar. Isn't that an old trick for husbands? Let's get the spotlight off ourselves when we mess up. And in verse 6, he just says, yeah, go after her. What a mess. Sarai lost her maidservant. Hagar was fleeing. Abram has a second wife who just fled with his unborn son. Abram and Sarai deeply desired a child, but not like this. This wasn't what they had, a, a picture of the future they were trying to secure for themselves. We're left here with a picture of disorder and chaos and pain and jealousy, a mess. May this serve as an example to us that taking things into your own hands when your faith is weak will lead to disastrous results. If you want to make decisions by faith, we need to listen to the voice of God's word. We need to pray so we know that God's word is God speaking to us. God still speaks today. He speaks to his people through his word and the power of the Holy Spirit, opening up our eyes and heart to hear his word and to receive it. And God's people still speak to him today. We do that in prayer. And we're invited to call out to the Lord. He never sleeps nor slumbers. He's always available. He's always attentive to the prayers of his people. And if we want to make decisions by faith, we need to give ourselves to crying out to the Lord and to listening to the voice of God and his word. And we must also ask for patience to understand if it is God's will for your life, you don't need to find the fast lane to get there. If it's God's will for your life, you don't need to find the fast lane of how to get there and to secure that for yourself. The test of faith in our life often is the test of patience. Well, by God's grace, the story of Genesis continues on. We see that God wasn't done with Abram. He wasn't done with Sarai. Clearly, they were still a work in progress. And isn't that the way it is with us Christians? God's pursued us. He's saved us. He's delivered us from slavery to sin. He's called us to walk by faith in a relationship with him. His track record is so clear in our lives. We look back and all we see is grace. All we see is God working even our hardships together for our good and for his glory. God has proven himself time and time again in our lives to be faithful, to be merciful, to be gracious and kind. But if we find ourselves in trials, we find ourselves in hardships if we perceive that God is too slow in answering our prayers in the ways that we want. Rather than walking by faith, we're tempted to live in impatience. Too many times we sinfully try to make things happen on our own. And something we can take away from this story is that if we want to make decisions by faith, seek wisdom from the Word of God. And I also want to add here, seek wisdom from people who know the word of God. There are people in this room who know the word of God better than you and I do. And we can go and ask them for counsel or help. So I want to exhort our congregation right now, Christian, it should be a regular part of your life that you are seeking counsel about decisions in your life. Certainly go to God first in prayer, but go to godly people who know his word. 
Their word isn't God's word, but oftentimes they can tell you how to think. And and they might see a blind spot in your life that you aren't recognizing. And they might be God's instrument to help you walk by faith and make decisions that honor him. Certainly, I want you to know our elders are all available for this. And they are a much better resource than you going to social media to form your opinion. They are a much better resource than going to YouTube and watching a video to figure life out. Right? You can do it yourself with anything in YouTube, but the Christian life is not a do-it-yourself life. It's a life where we need one another, we need God's Word, and we need the counsel of people who know God's Word. So seek that out from elders. Seek that out from other members in this church that we might walk in wisdom and in faithfulness to God's Word. And especially when we feel the pressure, when we feel hardship in our lives, the call is to help ask others, help us, pray for us, that we would turn to the Lord, that we would ask God for wisdom and ask Him for help. Brother and sister, look to the Word of God. Wait for Him. You will never be disappointed in waiting for God. Waiting for God produces joy and it produces life. Securing a future for ourselves, like we see in the lives of Abram and Sarah, produces pain and more problems. Well, next in verses 7 through 16, we see the faithfulness of God. So we saw the unfaithfulness of Abram and Sarai. In verses 7 through 16, we see the faithfulness of God, and we find a second encouragement. Second encouragement is this. Remember that God sees and hears your pain and trouble. Remember that God sees and hears your pain and and trouble. Abram and Sarai treated Hagar harshly. That was wrong. It was sinful the way that they treated her. But God showed her kindness. In verses 7 through 12, we see God's pursuit of Hagar. Abram and Sarai, faithless. That's verses 1 through 6. But in verse 7, we see God is always faithful. He saw the plight of Hagar, and he pursued her. God was faithful to pursue and to redeem this mess. Starting in verse 7, we see this angel of the Lord. And who this angel of the Lord is, this is God himself. This is God appearing. So typically, an appearance of the angel of the Lord in Scripture is God himself appearing to deliver good news. So read this section as God pursuing Hagar and the word of the Lord coming to him. Hagar, she fled the harshness of Sarai, presumably for her native Egypt. And God found her there in verse 7 by a a spring of water in the wilderness. Now this word found, it's the language of pursuit. It certainly doesn't imply that God was unaware of where she was and he was looking for her. It's just like what we saw back in the garden after Adam and Eve had sinned against God and they had fled and they were hiding in shame. And God found them naked in the garden after, after they sinned. God pursued Adam and Eve back then, and here he is pursuing Hagar. But she wasn't found in the sense that God was unaware of where she was, but rather she was found in that God was graciously pursuing her. In verse 9, the Lord urged her to return to Sarai, to submit to her, and not to despise her. It was good for her to return to be with Abram and Sarai. God himself would watch over her and bless her there. And then in verse 10, the angel of the Lord proclaimed another one of these I will statements. Remember back in chapter 12, we just saw the Lord himself telling Abraham everything I will do. Well, here's this same word, kind of the same formula of language in verse 10, God talking to this Egyptian slave. He's telling her, I will surely multiply your offspring 
so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. It's a promise. It's God pursuing her and graciously delivering a promise to bless her offspring and to multiply them. Her descendants would be included in this mighty nation. Now, as a confirmation of this promise, the Lord gave an oracle in verses 11 through 12, directly telling Hagar she would have a son, what his name would be, what he would be like, and what his future would hold. At the end of verse 11, the Lord declared the son's name would be Ishmi. That name meaning God has heard. Meaning God has heard your affliction. God was completely aware of the harsh treatment, the sinful treatment of Abram and Sarah that Hagar was enduring and fled for. He was completely aware of it, and he pursued her in kindness. Now, we don't see Hagar crying out to God. We see God pursuing her. It's all of grace. You know, giving this child the name Ishmael, also a, a picture of grace. That name Ishmael would serve as an ongoing reminder to Hagar of God's pursuit and care for her in affliction. Every time the name Ishmael, every time she's calling her son, Ishmael, get over here, it's time for dinner. She'd be reminded that name Ishmael means that God has heard. God heard me. It was a reminder of God's faithfulness to her in her life. We see in verse 12 that God told her about what her son would be like, which isn't that great of a picture of the future. Even a bit confusing with the imagery here. He shall be a wild donkey of a man. That's not a good description, right? If you describe somebody as a wild donkey of a man, you're not commending them. You're not saying something kind and nice about them. This wild donkey image, uh, it's an image of a desert donkey roaming about wild and free. The picture of a wild donkey is a picture of an individualistic lifestyle. Hagar was a servant. She didn't have a, a free lifestyle, but her son, he would not serve anyone. He would roam about the desert just like a desert donkey, doing as he pleased. In fact, his life would be full of hostility and conflict. The verse continues on in verse 12, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. There'd just be ongoing conflict throughout the generations, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So his hand would be against others in conflict, and the hand of others would be against him. This individual spirit would have him battling constantly with others. Now there's a, a tension here in this text because we see a child who's given a name by God himself that demonstrates God's care for his people. Yet at the same time as the story of the Old Testament unfolds, we see that the descendants of this child would not bless the nation, but rather would be an ongoing threat to the descendants of Abram through his son Isaac. So sometime next year, Lord early, early next year, we will get to Genesis chapter 25. We're just going through this whole book. That's our plan. And we'll see in Genesis 25 that Ishmael would go on to father 12 tribal rulers who would oppose the 12 tribes of Israel that would come through Abram's son, Isaac. You see, from Ishmael's descendants came enemies and opposition to God and to his people. So if Sarai's plan seemed like a solution, this oracle makes it clear. Nothing was solved. She's still barren. She still has no child. Abram, still without an heir, because as we see the story of Genesis unfold, Ishmael was not the one that God chose to be Abram's heir, not the one that God would choose to bless the nations through. So the same problems, they continued on. In fact, 
new problems, generational problems created by this human solution. You see, had Abram and Sarai waited on God, all of this could have been avoided. Had they trusted that, that God saw and heard their affliction, none of this would have happened. Well, the last two verses there in verses 13 through 14, we see Hagar's response to the word of the Lord coming to her. And it's a response of faith. In response to this word, Hagar called the Lord the God of seeing. She responded to the Lord's pursuit of her with faith, saying at the end of verse 13, I have seen him who looks after me. Hagar, an Egyptian woman, changed by God's pursuit of her. She came to know the one true God, the God of Abram. She came to know the care of this God. And as a result, in verse 14, the well that she was at where God found her and pursued her would be called Bir Lahai Roy, which literally translates as well of the living one who sees me. It's a proclamation of God and who he is and his character. It's an expression of God's ongoing care for her. We see in this response, the hearing and seeing nature of God and his mercy. And in fact, what's interesting here, Hagar becomes the first person in the Bible to name God. First person in the Bible to name God, which I think highlights God's grace. She's not held up as someone important or significant, certainly not seen to be important in her present society, certainly not seen to be significant in her present society, but yet seen by God that God sees and hears even the lowly. And in fact, God draws near to the lowly, to the outcast, to the afflicted. And she would be the one that God chose to be the first one in Scripture to name God. See, the one who was suffering mistreatment and injustice, God welcomed her. And she responded in faith, understanding this is the God who sees. This is the God who hears. He heard my affliction. Indeed, he'll hear the affliction of all who would turn to him. Well, to sum it up, this story, it shows the unfaithfulness of Abram and Sarai, the faithfulness of God, the response of faith from Hagar. And then the scene closes in summary in verses 15 and 16 that Hagar indeed obeys God. She returns to Abram and Sarai. Abram claims this son from Hagar, names him Ishmael in obedience to what God has proclaimed, and takes him in as a son. But don't miss this. While Hagar came back to Abram with a son, she also came back with a message. The message that she carried back to Abram and Sarai from an an Egyptian slave woman was that their God sees and hears. He hears and cares for the afflicted. Cry out to him. He can be trusted. He already sees. He already knows. Your prayers don't surprise him. Your prayers don't inform him. He's already seen. He's already heard. He already has compassion and care for the afflicted. Cry out to him and receive his care and know his care. You see, the message she carried back, God heard me in my affliction. You know, God heard Abram and Sarah as well. You, know, you can read this account and think, well, Abram should have known this. He should have known that God sees and, and hears. God had pursued Abram, called him out of Ur, freedom from spiritual slavery, rescued him from his folly and faithfulness time and time again. God had clearly demonstrated a record of hearing Abram, answering his request, providing comfort and assurance. And God knew Sarai's pain. He knew her struggle to wait for him. 
He would hear her cry. But she didn't cry out to him. She devised a, a faithless plan. And Abram didn't leave the situation to say, let's cry out to God. He went along with a faithless plan. And from experience, a, a terrible experience, they both would learn to cry out to the Lord. Once again, from this story, you and I can gain wisdom that if we're going to make decisions by faith, if we're going to guard against impatience and walking by sight, that begins with believing that, remembering that, who God is and his character. God sees and he hears us in our trouble. We're never alone in our pain. We're never alone in a trial. It may feel like we're lonely, but our feelings, while they are real, they often are not accurate indicators of reality. In fact, they often lie to us about what is real and what is true. Christian, you're never alone in a trial. You're never alone in pain. You're never alone in trouble. You may feel like no one else can understand you. And there may be some truth to that feeling at times, but there is one who knows, he sees, he hears, he understands. He knows even the things you don't know how to describe and put into words about your experience. God knows your pain and he's not indifferent to it. He cares. It takes faith to believe that. It takes faith to trust that God sees and understands every detail of our lives. It takes faith to pray and to ask him to work rather than coming up with our own plan to accomplish what we desire. It takes faith to wait to wait and to pray and to wait and to keep praying and to keep waiting. But God is so gracious to supply us, to strengthen our faith, to give us the faith we need to persevere. Now, the question is, will you ask him for it? Will you cry out to him for it? God loves, he desires for his people to pray for him. It brings him joy when his people come to him in their pain. You don't burden God, he does not grow weary or tired of hearing your request. Rather, he welcomes you to come to him. The one who desires a spouse this morning, the couple who desires a child, pastors who maybe desire for churches to grow, we face this too. You can either wait and trust God's plan or come up with human plans to grow a church. Isn't that right, Audrey? We have to give ourselves by faith to the ordinary means of, of God's grace physical pain or illness that you might be praying for relief from, a, a broken relationship that brings you pain and, and you don't know what to do, you don't know how to fix it, you don't know how to heal the situation, whatever it is that weighs heavy on your mind and your heart right now, Christian, God already sees it. God already hears your pain. You may not have cried out to him yet, but he already hears and knows your pain. And if we want to walk by faith, turn to this God who sees. Turn to this God who hears cry out to him. The call to trust God's word is often found in waiting for him, that as we endure hardship and affliction and trial, we must remember that God sees, he hears, and God is always faithful to care for his people. And isn't that what the gospel of Jesus Christ tells us? God saw us in our greatest affliction, enslaved to our sin, unable to help ourselves happy in our rebellion against him, not crying out to him, not seeking him, yet God graciously pursued us, rescued us, and saved us. Every member of this church has that testimony. Whether you came to Christ at five or whether you came to Christ at 80, you have that testimony that God graciously pursued you. You weren't seeking him, but he sought after you. 
And he saved you and he drawed you to himself and he brought you into a loving relationship with him. Every member of this church can look back and you can remember your baptism. You can remember the day you publicly professed that you've been united to the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in the life you now live, you live by faith in the Son of God. You see, the gospel of Jesus Christ tells us that God sent his son Jesus to die on the cross, to pay for sin, and to rescue the afflicted, to rescue those who weren't crying out to him, to love those who weren't loving him, to seek those that were not seeking him. God raised Jesus from the dead three days later that new life and hope would be given to those who are full of despair, that new life and hope would be given to anyone who would repent of their sin against God and turn and put their faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sin. You see, it's only through faith in Jesus that you can be rescued from your greatest affliction. And so if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, we say this all the time, I really mean this. We love you. We are so glad that you're here. We're glad you're here today. You are welcome to come back any week. We think coming to a local church like this is a wonderful place for you to hear about what you need to know. That God created you. He created you to live for him. He created a way for your sins to be forgiven. And that's only found through his son, Jesus Christ. The only way to be rescued from your greatest affliction is to turn and trust in Jesus Christ. And the greatest, the worst thing that can happen to someone is not suffering here on this earth. Rather, dying apart from God and facing eternal suffering in hell forever apart from God. The greatest affliction you know this morning leaving here is your sin against God. And God has already prepared the way. And if you call out to him today and repent of your sin and seek forgiveness through his son, Jesus Christ, he sees you, he hears you, he will rescue you and save you, and you will belong to him forever. Don't leave here today without talking to one of our members. Don't leave here today without talking to one of our pastors at the top of the ramp of what it would look like to be rescued from your greatest affliction and come to know Jesus Christ, the Son of God, today. And for those here, members of our church and others who may have put their faith in Jesus Christ, you and I must remember that if God saw and heard our affliction and rescued us, leading to our salvation and our conversion, how much more does he promise his ongoing care for us now that we've been adopted into his family, now that we know him as our loving Father, now that those covenant promises through the blood of Jesus Christ have been given to us now and forevermore. If he loved us and rescued us and saw us and heard us back then and saved us, how much more does he do that today? How much more will he hear you and care for you tomorrow? You can wait for him. You can trust him. You can turn to him. You don't have to live like the world around us. You don't have to live like the rest of Charlotte. By God's grace, you have been made to be a part of the people of God. You belong to him. Brother and sister, don't grow weary of crying out to him. Well, what must we do with God's promises? The great Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon taught that the believer is to take the promise, endorse it with his own name by personally receiving it as true, by, by faith to accept it as his own. If you have time to go and read about Spurgeon, uh, Spurgeon suffered depression and sorrow and had a, a, a number of things that he was afflicted with. And there's a wonderful book called Spurgeon Sorrows that I would commend to you that kind of chronicles that and details through that. But there was some teaching of Spurgeon where he declared this, God has given no pledge which he will not redeem and encouraged no hope which he will not fulfill. See, Spurgeon would point to what would help him in affliction 
is to look at the promises that are sure in God's word and to claim those through faith in Jesus Christ. And brother and sister, as Christians, you and I must listen to the voice of God and claim his promises by running to the Bible. And if this is the only time that our Bibles are open this week, we should not expect to grow in our faith. This is the only time we pray to God as you're corporately in the service this week or right before a meal. If that's the only time we pray to God, we should not expect to grow in knowing God's care for us. So brother and sister, give yourself to running to your Bibles today, this week. May this sermon be something that would give us all a greater appetite for God's Word. And as we run to our Bibles, may we rediscover the promises of God. May we grow in our trust in the one who has made such gracious pledges to all of his dear children. To close our time out, I want to leave you with some promises. So you can listen how you'd like. If you'd like to leave your eyes open and just stop and listen and put your pen down, you can do that. If you want to close your eyes and listen and pray for God's grace to stand firmly on his promises, you can do that. But all of these are promises from God's word that I want to leave our time with all of us meditating on. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 5-7. through 7. God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, casting all your anxieties upon him because he cares for you. Philippians 4, 6 through 7, be anxious for nothing, but in everything, through prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Romans 8, 32, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Matthew chapter 28, verse 20, the words of Jesus, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. All the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. And let's pray and close our time out together asking for grace to trust him more. Let's bow and pray.